Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Alice Nuttall, children's writer and co-creator of the webcomic Footloose. Hello, what have you been up to recently? Hello, hi, nice to be here. So, um, yeah, at the moment I've been um, I've been writing the latest chapter of the comic, which I co-create with um, my best friend Emily Brady, who is a fantastic illustrator. So I I write the script and she does all the hard work of actually turning <laughs> it into a comic. Um, and then I've also been working on the edits for a book I'm writing um, as part of a program called Golden Egg Academy, and that book's about teen Norse gods causing chaos. Um, so, yeah, very excited to be here on the podcast about children's fantasy literature. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'll get the, the title of the book from you and then we can put that in the show notes. That's That sounds delightful. Yeah, gods, gods in uh, real life mm-hmm. is one of my favourite things, definitely. Me too, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy reading it. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, no doubt, one of their books was was uh, right up your street. So it certainly was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Both really enjoyable reads. It was great. Excellent. So you you suggested Charmed Life by Diana Wynne-Jones, which is absolutely one of my favourite books. She is one of my favourite writers. Can you summarise the plot for us? Sure. So um, Charmed Life is, I believe it was the first one written, although not the first one chronologically, mm. in the Crestomancy series of books. And it's set in a world where magic is normal and almost mundane. Um, you can kind of go to your local witch or warlock to find, you know, to kind of buy a spell on the high street, essentially, um, which is a concept I love. And just I, I really like magic being part of the everyday world. And the plot centres around a pair of um, orphan siblings called Kat and Gwendolyn Chant, um, Kat being the main character. So he's this young boy, Gwendolyn is his slightly older sister. And Gwendolyn has magic and at the beginning of the novel, Kat doesn't. Um, obviously, there's going to be spoilers in this because mm. um, as, you, as you can imagine, it, it is revealed that in fact Kat does have magic. Um, and Gwendolyn is also quite a sort of bullying and domineering figure. Mm. Um, the, t- the pair are living with um, a local kind of guardian foster mother after their parents die in a boating accident. But Gwendolyn is very ambitious. She wants to go really far with her magic. And so she gets in touch with some distant relatives, um, particularly like, um, I believe, like a long lost cousin of theirs, who's mm. this um, um, very powerful magician known as Crestomancy. And they go and live with his family in um, Crestomancy Castle, which is um, you know, way out in the countryside. Mm. Um, and then it starts, it, there's, there's sort of two halves to the book, really. So in the first part, we have Gwendolyn realising that this isn't going to be like the big leg up into her magical career mm. that she immediately thought it was. And Kat kind of bearing the brunt of like the fallout of Gwendolyn's terrible mood and her kind of kicking back against the Crestomancy family. And then um, there's sort of the the midpoint twist of the story where um, after trying desperately to kind of, you know, be taken seriously as a magic user, Gwendolyn instead decides to um, 
essentially move out of that world completely and then there's a multiverse aspect which is brought mm. in so in like moving out of this world to the next one in what turns out to be a series of parallel worlds Gwendolyn drags in sort of her counterpart who's this girl from what's meant to be um it's kind of implied our world called Janet mm. so she's an exact physical double of Gwendolyn but she doesn't have any magical powers she's like a sort of ordinary school girl in a in a, I suppose um, reading it now, it's kind of in, it feels a little bit famous vibey. She's a very kind of jolly hockey stick sort of person yeah. who is very kind of practical and pragmatic and much, much kinder than Gwendolyn. Um, there's def- so the, the dynamic between these sort of two sibling figures changes drastically mm. as Janet enters the picture and Gwendolyn leaves it. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, there's... Um, there's also the fact that we learn later on in the book that Kat, um, he's spent his whole life believing that Gwendolyn's a special one. She's mm. a very powerful witch and he has no magic at all. And as we find out, um, Kat is actually, um, he's a very interesting and powerful character because he is a, like, like Crestomancy, he's an enchanter himself, which means that he doesn't have any doubles in the, parallel worlds and he instead he's sort of the only one of him in this multiverse and that with that comes several different lives hence we we learn his real name at birth was Eric and Gwendolyn has called him Kat because she's known all along that he has nine lives Um, and essentially he is um, he's got all this power he can but once Gwendolyn is out of the picture and not drawing on it for her own ends anymore he can begin to use and he can kind of develop himself as a more powerful and so as more autonomous figure yeah and um it's a book that really sticks with you I think um I have a feeling I was about 12 when I first read it which was not long after it was actually published so how about you when what first memories of reading this book so my my first memory of reading it again like I completely agree. It's a book that really stays with you. Um, it definitely had a really big impact on me. And it was the one that prompted me to go and read as much Diana and Jones mm. as I could possibly find. Um, my first memory of reading the book was actually, it was in a, it wasn't the book itself. It was a one chapter of it in a collection of basically uh, extracts of children's books. Um, I can't remember what the, it was basically an anthology, I think published by Puffin Books potentially. And it they put together samples of lots of like children's fantasy literature and I don't remember any of the other ones that were in it which I think says something about like how interesting and how much this book grabs you um and actually I think I was about seven or eight when I read it and the chapter that they included which I think was a very good choice but it I didn't read the full book for a little while after that because the chapter they included was one where they're at the castle and Gwendolyn is has basically started this campaign of terrorising the rest mm. of the family because she wants to be taught magic. And one of their rules is like none of them, you know, Gwendolyn will not be taught magic until she's proven that she can be responsible. So uh, Gwendolyn sets up this spell where she creates these apparitions to go and terrorise the family at dinner. And it's this really actually quite chilling and horrific scene where like she's, I, think, I believe she's built a fire and she's like, throwing insects and stuff into it so these giant then giant Mm. bugs come out of the fire and kind of crawl down the stairs and then there's um again it's it's an example of how well diana Jones seeds everything in um there's also two ghostly figures one of which uh, no two or three one of which is like um a 
a baby that's kind of giant and wobbling along when it, when it should be too young to walk. Um, one of which is a drowned child. And then there's another one which I can't quite remember. But um, we learn later on that those are three of Cat's past lives. He mm. died when he officially died when he was born, but because he's got nine lives, he came back. He died in the boating accident where his parents died for real, but he came back. Mm. And then there's there's been other situations where Cat has actually... So when we see him in the book, he only has three lives left because he's used up some of his lives without even realising it. Yeah. And, and because, he's also used some of his lives for her magic. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and because the, the, because the, the spell for her to go into the multiverse is also such a big part of magic, she yes. also um, she also kills him or takes one of his lives. Yeah. There's another period when he has a really bad stomach. Yes, yeah, um, and it's that's I, I think again that and another example of like Diana Wynne Jones seeding this in so early because it's mentioned um, I think in chapter two or something. But one time, Cat annoyed Gwendolyn and um, he and so, and so she gave him cramps. He believes. Mm. Um, and actually, it's like, no, he, he annoyed her and she killed him. It's just that she knows that isn't a long lasting thing for him. So it's, yeah, it's like reading it as an adult, I was thinking this is a really kind of quite in-depth exploration of like an abusive sibling relationship. Yeah, because, she, she's yeah, absolutely but, horrible to him. Yeah, she is. She's really like she does not care about him at all. She and Kat is so attached to Gwendolyn because he's yeah. his life as his protector. And actually, she's just protecting her power source. She doesn't care about Kat as her brother. She cares about him as a fit, a resource that she can draw on to get more magical power. Absolutely. She's really only interested in what she can get from him. So even though he is devoted to her, and that the very first paragraph of the book says, Kat Chance admired his elder sister Gwendolyn. She was a witch. He admired her and he clung to her. Great changes mm. came about in their lives and left him no one else to cling to. Mm. So, like, right from that beginning, it's sort of that setup is, you know, telling us that he literally clung to her because mm. he believed as a witch she couldn't drown. But he also, you know, the death of his parents uh, when he was so young has left him with nobody else. Mm. So that kind of abusive, that abusive relationship is, is set, set up from the very beginning. Um, how often Diana Wynne Jones is narrators? She she generally uses third person, um, mm. but not omniscient. Sort of limited. No, no, it's very close third person, isn't it? Yeah, and and also really unreliable. So um, last series, uh, Phil Dyson and I talked about um, Howl's Moving Castle, mm. where set up from the very beginning that Sophie believes that because she's the oldest of three, she's not going to have any adventures. Mm. That's it. And you know, because she's living in this world where fairy tale tropes are, are normal, that you know, she it should be the youngest one that goes off and has adventures. Yes. Whereas but, I think her actual third sister just wants to like have a happy life with her family at home, really. That's right. She, like, she, she, just, she just wants to be a wife and a mother. That's all she wants. Yeah. And to have lots of children. And I think um it reminds me a lot of um of Jane Austen. And Jane Austen's, although she's an omniscient 
No, she's still limited third person. She tells tends to tell stories from one person's perspective. But the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, uh, everyone knows that a man, a single man in in uh, need of a fortune, must mm-hmm. be in want of a wife, and that mm-hmm. sets us up to thinking, really? <laughs> but do they? Do we know that this is the case? Wow. And that kind of ironic use of, of language is, is very like um, Diana Wynne-Jones, I think. Uh, she, mm. She's such a good writer. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I think so, yeah. And, yeah, like I said, um, you know, we'll see. Cat is, I, I, I do find it interesting. I hadn't really, I hadn't thought about um, it initially as an unreliable narrator until you asked because, um. I think in my head, I often think of un- a, a deliberately unreliable narrator. So you get like the sort of the Thomas Ripley types and things mm. like that. And um, there's sometimes when, um, you know, the, in Agatha Christie on the on the occasions where she has the murderer telling the story and they, they mm. kind of omit certain details until the latest point. But um, yeah, I think Kat ends up being an unre- unreliable narrator because he has been lied to so much. And mm. he's, you know, his perspective is the truth as he sees it. But as particularly as an adult reader with um, maybe with like um, more understanding of the story, because I didn't necessarily pick up on it as much when I was a child mm. reader, but you can definitely see like, although that's not a bit where he's, you know, he's not being you know, misleading as a narrator, he's been gaslit there. And that's why he perceives it in this way, because he's been, you know, he, he's had his past rearranged essentially by someone providing a different narrative to him. So yeah, yeah it becomes more and more obvious as you read it. Um, like, and I guess, you read it as a sort of an older reader with you know, an ability to spot that and things, yeah. Yeah, I think this is why it's such a rewarding, well, why all her books are so rewarding, because the more we read them, the more we spot these these things. I mean, I definitely, I think the first time I read it, I thought, wow, I really like this, but I have very little idea of what's actually going on here. <laughs> what, what is this, you know? Um, and I, I mean, I had... I, I, totally forgotten until I read it this time that the, one of Kat's lives is lost because Gwendolyn hates him playing the violin yes. so she turns oh. his violin into <laughs> a cat called Fiddle and then the cat runs away so yes, yeah. <laughs> he's lost another life quite literally. And, but, like, but towards the end Fiddle comes back as well and then yeah. again with, with Kat kind of coming into his power and like becoming more in control of his own life and his own fate. You, you know, he, there's a bit where he's um because there's a there's a another pot in the second half where essentially there's a group of magic users who are trying to rebel against Crestomancy, who is I guess sort of like the a magical regulator in a way. He's mm. there to make sure that people essentially don't exploit the multiverse, which is what the um the the magic users that Gwendolyn initially learned from want to do. They they want to be able to go out to the other worlds and kind of exploit them. And Crestomancy is essentially there to try and stop them doing that and to, um, and to regulate the use of magic. Um, yeah. And there's a, so there's a bit where they're trying to, um, you know, they're, I think they're trying, to, they're trying to sacrifice Cat in order to get, um, out to one of the, get out to the other worlds. And there's a bit where they, Gwendolyn like, comes back to say, oh, by the way, you're going to have to kill him quite a few times because he's got you know, multiple lives. And so they're also trying to catch the cat to um, like the cat fiddle to basically, um, you know, to kill that cat. So they've got one of his lives out of the way and cat can kind of 
skip between his own mind and the cat's mind and stuff because it's because they've got that connection which yeah, yeah I found um, it was a really interesting part of it because again you can see cat like learning about his own magic in that point yeah it's so clever that the way the way she sort mm-hmm. of plotted it is so clever and the way things link up um it, it's it just amazes me um and kind of the, there's two I also like the way that there's two sets of siblings in this book mm, yes. and they're both older sisters with younger brothers, mm. aren't they? And the way, but the way that kind of cat learns about what sibling relationships should be like mm. from Prestamancy's yeah, yeah. children. Yeah. So yeah, we've got Roger and Julia who are mm. kind of, yeah, exactly what cat, you know, what what a sibling relationship should be like they've generally kind of got each other's back they get on well um obviously they they're not completely in each other's pockets they do like there's there's bits where um roger's like trying to get cat to come and play and cat is you know stuck to gwendolyn at that point and so mm. he's like he um, and then later on he does spend more time with roger and things like that and so yeah we've got that very kind of you know where they're they're a team but also they can be their own people Mm. Um, which is, yeah, it's a really interesting contrast to um, Kat and Gwendolyn. Yeah, and when, when Janet joins them, she kind of then starts to point out, firstly, like, Kat has to be responsible for her because she doesn't know the norms of Cat's of world. Yeah, yeah. But also, so he, no, that's the first time he's had that experience. Mm. But also that she's sort of saying, telling him that his relationship with, with Gwendolyn is, is not a good one. And it's, mm. it's not, you know, not the way that brothers and sisters should be. And um, I, I loved that as well. How, how, so you mentioned at the beginning that this book is, um, it's sort of part of a series, but it's not really... They're not, it's not a series as in, you know, this is the first book about this character. This is the second book about this character. Because actually in the other books, there's even different crestomancies, which yes, is yeah. interesting. So even, even crestomancy isn't crestomancy in all of the other books. How, how does it work, do you think? It's, it is really interesting the way, because I, th- I believe like when she wrote it, I think this was, she wasn't planning a full series mm. as a result. I think I'm, I, the edition I had, it had like um, some, an interview with Diana Wynne-Jones at the back. Um, and she was talking about how she had the idea for this one and sort of wrote, plotted it out and wrote the first draft within like a couple of weeks, which is a speed of writing that <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, but then, yes, as you said, like she, um, she then kind of developed it out into other books. So um, there's, you know, there's one on like the Crestomancy we see in this book, as we learn in, in this book, Crestomancy is a title and his name is Christopher Chant because he's like their cousin isn't mm. from you know, you know, so extended family. Um, so there's one book where you get um, Crestomancy, this Crestomancy's backstory where he learns that he's an enchanter um, and we, we find out how he met Millie, who is his wife in this book. And as, as we learn, she's, she seems like a kind of very, you know, like friendly mum character who's just mm. there. To, you know, she wants to nurture um, Kat and Gwendolyn. Um, and then at the end of the book, they find out that she's actually an incredibly powerful magic user in her own right. And we find out in 
the prequel book that um, that's because she was the avatar of a goddess back in her own world and so mm. she's still got these kind of essentially godlike powers that she can draw on whenever she needs to um there's other ones as well i think diana Wynne jones really uh went down the route of exploring all the different multiverses and the multiple worlds that exist in this particular series and so there's a one set in, again, another world that's kind of close to our one called Witch Week, which I think was the second one in the series I read. Um, and it's, it's quite a dystopian one in a way. It's set in a world where there's a, a sort of 1980s, 1970s, contemporary-ish world, except witchcraft is real, but it's very much banned. So there's mm. ongoing, um, you know, witch trials and there's... Um, witch hunters that operate as like essentially you know part of the regular police force and it's set in a school full of essentially the children of convicted and burned witches who are then being very closely scrutinized for any signs of magic in their own right and it it kind of sets up this sort of the crucible style thing where um on the first day of school someone there's a message found which says someone in this class is a witch and then mm-hmm. so all the students begin turning on each other and trying to work out who the witch is because they know they're all in danger. And Crescent Mountain doesn't really come into that story until the very end when um, one, of the, one of the students figures out how to summon him because, the, it's, again, it's a situation where magic has got completely out of hand or attitudes to magic have got mm. completely out of hand and it needs a regulator to come in and like resolve it. And so it's, it is... I, I found that one like, um, you know, in, if Charmed Life is kind of quite uh, upbeat fantasy novel in mm. lots of ways, and then you get a much more of a kind of dystopian thriller style in another book in the series, which I found re- a really interesting. It was a very, a very like large tonal swerve, really. I think in that um, in that part of the story. Yeah, but I think it's quite. Yes, you're right. I, I didn't read Witch Week until I was an adult, and. It is very, I, I read a lot of, of children's boarding school stories when I was, when I was a child, because actually boarding schools were a bit like fantasy worlds to me. Uh, you know, I'd never met anyone who'd gone to a boarding school. I didn't go to a boarding school myself. And I actually didn't know as a child that there were still boarding schools. I hadn't got a clue. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, that, that kind of, because the school is is a, is actually like an institution, isn't it? it it's yeah, almost, yeah. you know, it's almost like a reform school. Yeah, it's and, definitely but the, not like your Mallory Towers type. It's more. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You, there's no ponies. Yeah, this this is where this is where the kids who are too much trouble get sent, basically. In this, yeah. Area, so. And that the amount of bullying that's going on is is really quite horrendous. But the mm. also the the kind of the the language that she uses to describe the school is, is disgusting. Mm. It really is revolting, you know, like the kind of the smell of it and the colours that are used and the, mm. the kind of the textures around. And it is, it's so awful. It really mm. is awful. And, um, and yes, when you know, Crestomancy arrives and, you know, he's, sort of, he's such a glamorous personality mm. and, and so charismatic yeah. um and the way he dresses is is so astonishing you know the different yeah. different dressing gown for every day and and so on is yeah. he's such a fun character to read like um in fact, he just 
he's kind of wandering around being sort of vague and eccentric most of the time and then but also you realize he's like paying attention to everything he's aware of everything that's going on and yeah it's kind of yeah quite an interestingly written figure yes absolutely I went to a Diana Wynne Jones conference about three years ago I think um and it was it was in Bristol it was really fabulous and um one of the things we did was wear dressing gowns. Everybody oh, right, that people yes. got. I have a. I had like this sort of fake silk uh, <laughs> dressing gown, and and there were some amazing dressing gowns people were wearing, and really very glamorous. Uh, you know, sort of the kind of kimono style ones, and so on. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it, was, it was fab. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Um. Shall we talk about who let the gods out then? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh yes, it is. I do love, uh, mm-hmm. I do love Christomancy. I'm very, uh, you know, he's sort of like, uh, I had a bit of a crush on him, I think. As, as, I as completely a- <laughs> understand that. Yes. Yeah. I think um, I am amazed there hasn't been like, uh, you know, because I know obviously there's Howl's Moving Castle is like the film adaptation and, very well known in its own right, just as mm. a film. And obviously, like, there's been a lot of adaptations of various examples of Diana Wynne Jones's work. And I'm just, I'm just surprised there hasn't been a Crestomancy adaptation because it's just so, you know, there's so much they could do with it. And yeah, so like such a rich world and such interesting mm. like, characters in it as well. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I, I think he's yeah, the costumes and everything would would be so amazing. So I'd, I'd really like that as well. So the, the next book, the second book we're looking at is Maz Evans' Who Let the Gods Out? Um, so the, the blurb says, when Elliot wished upon a star, he didn't expect a constellation to crash into his dung heap. Virgo thinks she's perfect. Elliot doesn't. Together, they release Thanatos, evil demon of death, epic fail. They need the king of the gods and his noble steed. They get a chubby Zeus and his high horse Pegasus. Are the gods really ready to save the world? And is the world really ready for the gods? It's a, a big, thick book. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I read um, the ebook version, but it is, yeah, it's definitely, particularly seems it's aimed at like um, the sort of the 8 to 12 group, I would say, maybe, maybe even the younger end of the 8 to 12 group, although obviously it's. Yeah, reading ages is, is a very broad and like great yeah. area. And that. But yeah, it's quite a, I suppose it, it didn't feel as long of a read as it actually is because the chapters are so sort of snappy and action packed. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very popular book in primary schools. I think as a book for teachers to read as a class novel, I, I can imagine though, a, a 10-year-old me racing through that book though mm-hmm. um so yeah and you're right yes because the chapters are quite short it is mm-hmm. it's an easy and pleasurable in mm-hmm. many ways very pleasurable book to read and it is so funny it's mm-hmm. it there are a lot of jokes per page yes. yeah yeah um, really really kind of yeah like as many as possible squeezed in it felt like um yeah because obviously like Charmed Life, it has it has a lot of humour in it, but I think it's more kind of like 
I suppose situational and it's like mm. um, you know the the kind of the absurdity of like Janet trying to fit in with the world the new world that she doesn't understand whereas yeah this was definitely more written like a comedy script in a way it's like mm. you know jokes every other sentence really which was you know it was I, I can see like kids absolutely loving that that side of the humor of it and everything yeah I think um Something else that interested me is about the use of mythology and the way that the curriculum that is taught uh, to pupils in English schools will mean that a lot of that book was not would not have been as accessible to me as a child because I didn't really know anything very much about the ancient Greeks when I was at primary school. But now it is part of the curriculum. I think that children who have learnt about ancient Greece will, have, will really go, to, go for that and will understand it a lot better than I did. Because I didn't know that Thanatos was a demon of death because the only time I've ever come across Thanatos was, was in the Marvel movies. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think, no idea. I, again, like, I read a lot of like mythology when I was little, but I think, yeah, right, there's such a I mean I, I didn't even you know I didn't win the thought of the constellations as part of it because obviously the constellations are such a central part of this story as well as the gods mm. and you have the whole as as Virgo goes into great detail you have all the different like you have the mortals you have the gods you have the constellations you have the demons and you have the I can't remember what they're called but they're sort of neutral ones aren't they so like the ferryman on the river six yeah he's, he's he's an immortal but he's not like got superpowers but he's also not on the same level as the mortal yeah. like Elias and things like that and it's yeah it's just really interesting kind of you know again like such you know wide world building of almost like drawing on mythology but you know connecting I, I one of the things I really love was the way the mythology connects to things you recognize in the real world and like, I, I loved as someone who's like worked in various like you know, university admins in past jobs and things like that, looking at all the all the meetings and all like the satirical takes on like bureaucracy and admin, I found, you know, I, like obviously that wouldn't be necessarily something a, a kid would find as funny as mm. I did, I think. Yeah. Um, obviously there's, you know, um, but yeah, all the things of like the, the constellation sitting around not making a decision mm. from these meetings that go on for centuries. It's like, yeah, we've been in meetings like that. That's why, you know, that's yeah. what it can be like a lot of the time. <laughs> Or they feel like centuries a lot of the time, yeah. yeah. And I loved um, Virgo's characters. I, I thought the, you know, the way that, that Maz Evans has played with kind of astrology and mm. Greek myth in that, in making yeah. Virgo, and I, as, a, as a Virgo myself, you know, Virgo is a goody good. She's a rule, rule follower. Uh, she kind of has quite a good opinion of herself mm. and and doesn't really like being told she's in the wrong mm. but yeah that that was very funny and the my other favorite joke is about the ferryman and the way he's sort of like now an uber driver <laughs> it's just yes. so funny oh, it's, it's brilliant yeah it really <laughs> made me laugh um and yeah it is is great uh in in that way um, although there is, I think, a negative side to some of the humour. Did you mm. feel that way as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely felt like um, 
I think like because I've got I, I was like scribbling notes as I went through and I was like oh yeah the legacy of Roald Dahl again because once again we get like it's I, I, I do feel like um, obviously societal fat phobia is a widespread problem mm. I think in children's literature there is a real like hangover from the days of Roald Dahl of like all the fat people are bad and you know the good people are slim people who can eat a lot because also a bit like um you know thin people who don't like food are also bad and you know that's that's the kind of the broad strokes in like particularly role girl stories um and yeah you do see that with um like mr boyle at the school is the first one who turns up and he's like a bad fat person whose fatness is like symbolic of how bad and horrible he is and stuff and then of course we have other characters like um uh, Patricia Porchley Plum, she's like described, you know, she's a horrible character, mm. but her physical appearance is like equated to that. And, you know, it's it's something that I kind of like, I see it in, when I see it in books, I think like, I, I really wish we were beyond that at this point because, yeah. And actually, I mean, that was a thing I noticed when when reading, like going back to Charmed Life, I've, in a way, it's, it's quite odd that a book from the 70s is like not perfect, but in a lot of ways, more progressive particularly on like fat representation than a book written like in the 21st century because there's that one scene where um you know Gwendolyn is making fun of Roger and Julia for being fat and Roger and Julia are just absolutely not bothered by it at all and they're like oh it's quite nice being fat it's quite comfortable and to be honest it must be awful to just you know be completely like you know like a china doll like you are like a porcelain doll kind of thing Mm. I think it's the line that's used and so it's just interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that like in the the older book we have like um some sort of like pushback against you know fat phobia and stereotyping of fat people, and then the more modern book we don't have that. So that's something that really stuck out to me. Yeah, yeah, and and Millie is as as you say, she's a very powerful, um, very powerful character. She's a very kind, very motherly. Yeah. But she's also not beautiful. No. She's not glamorous. She's no. not dresses nicely, but she isn't a stunning beauty. And, no. uh, and in the way that Christomancy is is so handsome mm. and so charismatic mm. uh, and and so on. And that that I found really interesting that Diana Wynne Jones is sort of like not sort of saying, well, you don't you don't have to be beautiful mm. and actually with Gwendolyn being the very pretty character in the book and she's also mm. mean and so yes. you know she doesn't behave nicely whereas Janet who looks a lot like Gwendolyn mm-hmm. in many ways but is also but her character is is totally different yeah she's other, like much kinder much fairer yeah and um yes uh, although there was there is some I think some dated language in in um, Charm oh, Life. Nice, yeah. quite which, casual race racism in there. Yeah, which would be so easy to get rid of in edits as well. I think that's the mm. thing. Is obviously there's some like classic books where I think it was you couldn't necessarily be re-edited and would just have to be rather read with a critical eye and with like you know, explanations and discussions mm. with a kid you're reading them with potentially. Um, but yeah, with the, the in Charmed Life, there's like the, yeah, as you said, like the kind of very casual offhand, like a mm. couple of like racist phrases, I think in it, that mm. could just easily be removed. 
um, Absolutely. without impacting the story in any way. Yeah. The other thing I found was a bit of a like <gasps> sort of slap in the face moment is the joke about cross-dressing in yeah. uh, Who Let the Gods Out, which did mm. surprise me because this mm. is only a couple of years old, this book. Mm. Let me just check on the date of its publication. But it's cross-dressing as a joke. 2017. Yeah, so it's really not very long ago at all. And that really just didn't need to be there. There was no purpose yeah. to that joke except to say, ha, 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 a bloke in a dress. Hilarious. Yeah. You know, there was... I think there's so much other... I mean, and as the book shows, there's so much other opportunities for humour about, like, um, you know, I mean, like, again, like, you know, creating like fun absurdity like the fact that the queen is suddenly amazing at martial arts and which was brilliant and like I I think I can imagine kids just like absolutely sort of creasing up laughing at that scene because it's you know obviously just such an absurd situation that is so much fun to read and that's yeah um and you've got you know like really inventive fun you know humor like that and so yeah the like, cross-dressing as a joke doesn't need to be in it when you've got like you know the queen beating up a demon and throwing her like using her crown as like a, a weapon and stuff yes and Aphrodite running a dating agency yeah <laughs> yeah that was that had its you know that was that was quite funny um yeah, yeah there, there is a lot of it that that is and I think also uh, what's uh, other aspects of inclusion, such as um, Elliot's mum having mental illness yeah, and yeah. and that kind of the, the difficulty he has as a young carer mm-hmm. and also having a, char- uh, a very poor character, or a character where he was really struggling for money. And there's mm-hmm. quite explicit comments about the lights, the electric lights being turned off because yeah. they can't pay the bill. And, you know, the, the fact that, that um, his mum took out a loan and the, the loan has to be paid off. And that, that really kind of is, yeah, quite hard hitting for a book for kind of eight, nine, yeah. 10, 11 year olds. Um, yeah, and so those, the kind of, that I think is a bit of a mismatch. And I think that, uh, actually, I think that Maz Evans, editor should probably have had a bit of a word about uh, about the, the the fat phobia and and the um, the transphobia really mm-hmm. yeah um what do you think about about the length of this the book I mean you said it's quite quite snappy um chapters so as as an author yourself uh, for children do you think that, you know, we obviously had the era of J.K. Rowling and the absolute doorstoppers of books yeah. that, that she wrote. But do you, do you think there is still, um, you know, is there a marketing push for shorter books or longer books? Or, or what do you think about that? Um, it's, I think um, there does seem to be a range, actually. But um, I think, obviously, um, like, because... As I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm not like, I'm not, I'm still doing the edits for what will hopefully be my first um, published novel. I'm still like working on, um, you know, getting that finished and ready to go out for submission. And one of the things I have been told is um, keep it below 50,000 words. And obviously like 
fantasy. I think fantasy does get a bit more leeway and it's mm. sort of more acceptable for fantasy books to be a bit longer because I think you um, there's the anticipation that yeah the world the world building will take up mm. a fair chunk of the word count um, whereas contemporary or things like that are tend to be a, a bit shorter because you don't need to explain the world people are, are already living in that world so you don't need to establish like the actual the structure of the world in the same way as you mm. do in, in a fantasy book um i think seeing um there's definitely does seem to be um yeah like i said a range of you get shorter books but um i think like the books particularly for this eight to twelve age group there definitely do seem to be um a fair number of longish books for that age. Um, I think particularly like um like one another series I've read a lot is like Robin Stevens detective novels and things like that. And they're maybe not like I, I suppose yeah similar similar kind of length to this book. Um but I suppose the children the children who are likely to be picking up these books are potentially ones who are already grappling longer reads. Whereas um yeah like children who are maybe not quite at the point where they would be reading books of this length anyway there are other there are shorter you know shorter books out there as well um yeah it's like I haven't realized quite how like seeing the physical copy of it I haven't seen quite realized quite how you know it is quite a a decent like decent sized book really this one yeah and like it it didn't really feel that long when reading it because of like the the kind of how action-packed it is and how like snappy the different chapters are and stuff yeah, it's 367 pages long. I've just checked. But actually, the font size is quite big. And this is certainly something I've noticed, is that in, in books now, like when I was in my older sort of puffin books, the font size is tiny. And it's now getting to the stage because of uh, me getting older, that it's becoming quite uncomfortable to read. Um, whereas this font is a lovely clear font. And it's um, it's also quite big. This is uh, a Chicken House book, and I, I think Chicken House are absolutely yeah, wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah, it doesn't actually tell me which font it is, but it's is very nice, very clear. There's a lot of white space around it, mm. and also at the top, at the bottom of each page, there's a little dumpy Pegasus, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Uh-huh. And uh, the chapter headings, um, yeah, there's sort of a, a grey cloud and uh, a picture of, of one of the characters, which is it was also really nice. And I, I mean, I love, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of a book books as a physical object, and I think children's books mm-hmm. in particular are very beautiful, can be very beautiful physical objects. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why um, sales of physical children's books is obviously still very high because not all children have uh, phones or you know e-readers or um, tablets or whatever. But it it does feel like a really nice book, really nice object to hold. Yeah, tell us a little bit more then about about your book. So you've mentioned it is that a um, a book with um norse mythology uh as as an inclusion fantasy so so can you summarize it yeah so um essentially it's um it's sort of a let me sort of set in a magical world and essentially i have like 
it centres around um, one of the lesser known Norse goddesses, so Sigyn, who in the original myths is um, Loki's wife, and he ends up kind of in the cave with him where Loki, Loki ends his days kind of chained up in a cave with a snake dripping venom on his face. And, um, you know, that's, it, that's his fate because of like the events that will eventually lead to Ragnarok. Um, and Sigyn is in the original is in the cave with him, like hold, you know, catching the poison from the snake in a bowl. So at least Loki gets a bit of a break from that. So I kind of, I, I hadn't read much about her as a figure in um, sort of retellings of myths and books that draw on mythology. And I got to thinking about her and eventually it, it kind of, kind of eventually became this, again, a little bit like a boarding school story with um, sort of young Sigan learning magic at this, um, you know, at this, like with all the other Norse gods. Um, Loki um, kind of turns up as basically Sigan's best friend who um, just kind of is her way into this world. And um, essentially it's, it's sort of set up in, um, so basically the setup is that uh, Sigyn's sister is going to learn magic with the Norse gods, but Sigyn turns out to have magic too, and then has to like get control of her magical powers while also trying to kind of foil a plot by the frost giants to sort of take over and, you know, destroy Valhalla and, you know, upset the world and things like that. So it's been, it's been a kind of long, long journey writing it, and I'm fingers crossed in the final stretches now, so. Sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I love all of those things. Um, yeah, boarding schools, magic, magical girls, all good. Yeah, that sounds truly fab. Thank you. And, um, you know, good luck. And I, I hope it does get picked up very soon. Yeah, it, Chicken House, if you're listening, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, I... I I have loved Chicken House books for a really long time. So yeah, it was it was good to read like um Who Let the Gods Out because I know if it if it's published by the Chicken House, it's gonna be a good read. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to episode 15 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or you can email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can. It helps to satisfy my vanity. Thanks to Steve Baker-Trails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye.